a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. talk about diet and they say it's good to reduce the intake of red meat and that might reduce your risks of a cancer recurrence or your risks of getting cancer in the first place. I always tune into messages like that and red meat is just an example but really I then always walk away and think well how much exactly what is it that they mean like do I need to cut out red meat or if they say to reduce it reduce it what to one portion a day reduce it to one portion a week what exactly does it mean and the same goes for stories like sugar and soy for example I still have women messaging me so so often saying I was told to cut out soy and then when we talk a little bit in more detail we often don't know well does that mean soy that comes from food or soy that is processed and it comes in the processed form or does that mean soy when it comes to the forms of supplements what is it exactly that we know from studies what does the evidence tell us and i think the clearer we can be and the more we can talk about the exact evidence that we have the better we're going to then be able to manage our weeks because quite frankly changing one's diet is difficult and it requires a little bit of planning and some of you might be sitting at home thinking yeah I've been trying to eat better in a long long time and I still haven't even sat down to do a meal plan and I was working with a lady who is in my action in my current empowered menopause program and doing the meal plan which is one thing this lady wanted to do requires a lot of effort because we expect to do our shopping we often buy the same things week in week out then we're really tired when we have to cook, sometimes not just for ourselves, but our families as well. You might have a few picky eaters thrown into the mix. And it is really challenging, isn't it, to eat the way you just want to be eating. And a real amount of planning needs to go into making that week successful for yourself so that you have the ingredients in the fridge, the recipes are, are ready, so that you know how long are you going to sit and maybe prepare for a meal? Is it going to fit into the, your weekly schedule? And so if we then on top of that have concern about, well, I don't actually quite know whether I should eat the soy or is this portion of meat too much now? I can't remember what the guidance says. When we have that confusion added to the complexity of how eating healthily can look anyway in everyday life, I think it's so overwhelming that sometimes we just even don't really try or we try half-heartedly. But when we try half-heartedly, I feel we're setting ourselves up to fail. And then that's just a rubbish feeling. A uh, long time ago, I met the amazing Crystal Zuniga. She is a cancer dietitian nutritionist from the US. 
And ever since I came across her Instagram, I've been following her tips and advice because she's one of those people that makes and wraps up all of the evidence and all of the myths we've got and tells us exactly what we know and what we don't know and how that can translate onto our plates. And I'm so delighted and grateful that she's here with us today. And for the next half hour, we're going to do a little bit of myth busting. We're going to look at the evidence, the do's and don'ts of how to eat to reduce our risks of recurrence or reduce our risks of getting cancer in the first place. And if there is a difference even, let's welcome this absolutely fabulous woman into our conversation. Hi, Crystal. I'm so excited to be here and to welcome you to the Menopause and Cancer podcast. I'm half an hour late and I want to apologize, but the reason I'm bringing it up is because I'd got my movement snack in and I quickly thought I walked a dog. I've got a busy day podcasting. So thank you for waiting for me. You're amazing. (laughs) I think that's exactly something I'd love to encourage, being physically active. So that's great. Clearly, my brain fog was kind of preventing me from doing things properly, but here we are. Crystal, you're a cancer nutritionist, dietitian. You're based in the US, and I've come across you on Instagram. And often there are contents and people that I go back to and I look over and read over their snippets of information, and you're one of those accounts because everything you say is so scientifically backed up and you talk a lot about evidence and you talk about lots of studies. I always think, wow, you're one of those places that is a really go-to point for me. How did you end up or how did you muddle your way into this field of becoming a cancer dietitian? Yeah, well, thank you for saying that about the content. I really do try to bring that evidence to the general public because often it is hidden within scientists and behind paywalls. So I like to share that information. Uh, but yeah, actually, I was an undergraduate student. I was studying to become a dietitian and I did some research with one of my mentors and she was doing research on how a dietary compound in pomegranates was impacting uh, cancer cell growth. And it was just in a Petri dish, but it opened up my eyes into things we had not learned in our general education about using nutritional strategies when someone has a, a chronic disease like cancer. And I decided to study more of that. So I did my PhD in nutrition, where my research was focused on dietary interventions for prostate cancer and uh, did some research when I was uh, had my own laboratory looking at nutritional strategies for, quote, chemo brain or cognitive impairments after cancer. And uh, then I got into doing more clinical practice and both an outpatient, in an outpatient setting and also having my own private practice. So often I tell people I wasn't set out going to school saying I'm going to be a cancer dietitian. Just something sparked my interest and just saw so many unknowns and uh, just really wanted to delve in deep into this fascinating area of nutrition. And so many of the things that you researched and that you studied in the process of being where you are today are so interesting to me because those are all the questions that myself, I've been asking myself and many people in our community are asking themselves is what can I do with food because we're eating every single day to either reduce my risks of a cancer recurrence or to improve how I'm feeling and maybe help myself with some of the symptoms of menopause or cancer, like you said, chemo brain or brain fog. Do you believe that food is really powerful once we've had a cancer diagnosis and food can actually, I I know we could have a debate here, could it be a bit medicinal? Uh, You know, many people talk about food can be medicine, yes or no, and we can talk about it from lots of different aspects, but do you feel 
food is powerful. Oh, absolutely. And I think the research is starting to continue to stack up to show that because there is plenty of research that's stacked up over the decades about diet and risk reduction for cancer. And now trying to gather data about what about when someone has cancer, can we do more than just recommend, you know, don't lose weight, eat more protein? Could we be supporting certain dietary patterns and see how that impacts outcomes? And I'll say with the current research, there is that um, understanding that more anti-inflammatory plant-based dietary patterns associated with better outcomes. And I think that's just supporting what we've kind of already been generally recommending is what we need to do for risk reduction could be what we need to focus on during cancer as well. And yeah, I, I'm careful about that language because I don't like to say that food is medicine because it often gets interpreted as that we could use food instead of medicine. I think we're going to find that dietary strategies are going to help improve the efficacy of what targeted therapies could do. And so when you did your research on prostate cancer and diet and the impact on prostate cancer, I the first thing that struck me was, well, that's blokes and that's men. And of course, they're going to plow lots of research into helping them uh, have maybe better outcomes for a, a male cancer. Are there equal studies or for breast cancer survivors or ovarian cancer survivors? Do you know? Say so breast cancer is definitely where a lot of the research has been. Um, it is the most common cancer right, in, in women. And so there is going to be a larger population to study. It's They're also a more motivated population too that wants to participate in these trials. So I feel like there is a lot when it comes to, to women, but it is more breast cancer focused. Um, I am starting to see more of an increase in colorectal cancer related research. But I'd say there's also plenty of cancers where we don't have much research about the dietary impacts and those cancer types. So there's still definitely a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. Most people listening to this podcast have been diagnosed with lots of different types of cancer because so many cancer treatments push us into menopause. For some, that's been surgery. For others, that's medication. And everyone's arrived here for different reasons. If we wrapped all of the people that have had a cancer diagnosis into one bucket for now, what dietary strategies could we apply that can help us reduce our risks of recurrence? You touched on inflammation, but what does that mean on my plate? Could you break that down for us? Yeah, so currently our, our recommendations for cancer survivors in, in general is to follow what the recommendations are for cancer prevention. And so what that is, is a dietary pattern that is focused on more plant foods in the diet. So recommended more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, limiting uh, red meat, avoiding processed meats, uh, limiting processed foods, older processed foods and sugar sweet sweetened beverages, um, limiting and now even some recommendations to avoid alcohol is another. Uh, but Generally, it's more of a plant-forward diet that's limited in processed foods, limited in sugar-sweetened beverages, limited in that red meat, and just focusing on getting as many plants in the diet as possible. Um, because we really know that, yes, they're a great source of fiber, we love, and they've got vitamins and minerals, but there's also been more research on that they have more than that, that there are compounds in these fruits and vegetables that the plants are using them for their own purposes. But when we eat them, they may have anti-inflammatory, um, antioxidant, maybe even anti-cancer activity. So it's beyond just fiber and getting some vitamins. There's other things in plant foods that could be eliciting benefits. 
Let's go um, into a little bit more detail of some of the foods that we often hear to avoid. So um, processed meat is kind of like a no-brainer. So I was born in Austria, I was raised in Austria, and I think for most of my teen years, I had salami sandwiches for my pack lunch, and I loved them. We would go through you know, a lot of salami and I just always loved it. So we know kind of like what processed meat is. But what about red meat? I think when I have conversations, there's a bit more confusion of should we reduce red meat or is it just a processed meat? Yeah, definitely the processed meat, as you said, there could be these um, compounds in there that more directly related to colorectal cancer. It's that concern there again with the uh, red meat as well. So with red meat, a lot of the concern might be just by the way that red meat is typically consumed. So it's typically grilled at high heats, and that forms uh, these types of compounds that can have direct carcinogenic effects in the colon. Uh, so there might be some guidance, a little more nuanced guidance of maybe how you cook your red meat. Because when we do these types of studies, when they're asking people to reflect on how they eat, you don't really get to get to some of that nuance about how they're preparing that food, right? We just see more red meat, increased risk of certain cancers, but it might be dependent on how they're eating that, what the rest of their diet is like as well. But I say generally, you know, I think it's not a bad idea to have diversity in our protein sources and not be too reliant on things like red meat. And when we say we want to reduce red meat, do we reduce it to, because there might be lots of people listening, thinking I actually really quite enjoy my burgers or my steak, but how much do we reduce it by? Like what would feel safe for you to recommend to a patient? Yeah, so the American Institute for Cancer Research does give some specific guidelines about red meat. It seems about 12 ounces, 12 to 18 ounces a week. Uh, so that is actually quite a bit uh, Although I've had some people say 18 ounces, that's how much I can get in a couple of days. I said, wow, that's a very expensive way to eat too, because red meat is not cheap. Um, but yeah, the recommendation is like 12 to 18 ounces. So a burger is typically you know, four ounces. So that could be three burgers in a week. Uh, but red meat also includes uh, venison, uh, which popular lamb, pork, and beef. So actually, that is that could be three portions of red meat a week, isn't it? Without then we having to think if that's a part of a diet I really enjoy, you don't have to cut it out completely, you can reduce it to maybe three portions a week. That doesn't sound so drastic. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, I think that's a great example too, when we say things like limit, to kind of look into what does that mean. And well, actually, my, I already am maybe limiting that in my diet. I have an occasional burger and to not put too much fear around it, that it's not one burger that would cause a cancer to occur or cancer to come back. It's about how frequently you're consuming them and what does the rest of your diet look like? I think initially when people think they want to limit something, and I certainly know that for myself because I got so many things wrong when I was changing my diet, is that it's very difficult to know what to replace it with. So people are often feeling, I don't know what to add now, because although I'm reducing my red meat, well, what do I replace it with? Um, do people come to you and they want recipes when you speak to patients, or is it more a general the do's and don'ts of diet, or how much detail can you give a patient? Yeah, definitely coming with people have different needs and things that would guide them. I'd say that a big common theme is that they just feel overwhelmed. They heard this is good, this is bad, and just feel confused. So to talk to somebody that 
is keeping up with the research. I'm not trying to fear monger. I'm just saying this is what our current evidence is. I think some people just find that's helpful to reduce some of their fears around food. Like, okay, I can include a burger occasionally. Um, I can enjoy a dessert occasionally and helps give them some relief around that. But some people do just want, tell me what to eat, especially during cancer treatment. They're like a meal plan. I just can't, I used to love cooking. I got so much on my plate right now. Want that guidance about just tell me what I should be eating and I'll eat it. Um, So I definitely get people that have different needs. People who feel generally, though, just overwhelmed with a lot of conflicting information that they feel like they just don't know how to eat anymore. And that's really sad to hear because this is something you have to do. We have, we have to eat. You cannot avoid eating and generally trying to eat multiple times a day and you're making a lot of food decisions. So if every food decision is feels conflicting and um, you're scared, that's a really stressful way to live. Mm, off the top of your head, what are the main sort of conflicting pieces of information that patients bring to you that you kind of think, oh my God, not another one of those? <laughs> Definitely. Um kind of that message of limiting red meat then turned into you should have no animal products. And then they're trying to go vegan and don't know what to eat and how much to eat and maybe heard that soy is bad. And how do I eat that? So I try to give some guidance. Can we just want to limit animal proteins? We don't have to avoid them completely. Another one is being scared of carbohydrates. Um, And so they're restricting fruit from their diet, grains from their diet, afraid to enjoy a dessert. That's a very common one. Um, And I provide some guidance there that actually we have a lot of evidence that fiber, which is found in these carbohydrate containing foods, is associated with many health benefits and that enjoying a sweet treat, again, that's perfectly okay to do. Let's look at the foundations of your diet. So I see a lot of fear around animal products, including animal products in the diet. I see a lot of fear about carbohydrates and and concerned about that sugar feeds cancer myth. Mm. So let's stick with the animal protein a little bit more and then work our way down. I'd love to discuss soy with you and Mm -hmm. help me remember just in case I forget my thread. But when we then talk about reducing red meat, for example, does this include fish or how, where does the fish sort of fall into that? Because that's obviously animal protein. Yeah, and fish uh, would be considered part of that Mediterranean dietary pattern that has been studied that's shown benefits as well when it comes to cancer risk reduction and also a dietary pattern during cancer treatment that could be beneficial. So fish is definitely good to include. I do provide some guidance, though, about trying to limit uh, the very high mercury containing fish. Just generally, any population, we should try to limit consuming high mercury fish. products. But salmon is a great example of a good fatty fish to include in the diet. And um, yeah, so it doesn't need to be avoided and fish could actually be included. It should be included in the diet. And is there another limit so that you think actually this person is eating fish seven times a week, that might be a bit too much because of the mercury or because I think, you know, I really when I was sort of embarking on this, I really wanted the clearer the guidance for me, the easier it was. So if someone said, you know, th- fish three times a week, it's just like I can stick to it. But if someone says fish is good, but not too much, it's like, oh my gosh, how, how much is too much? Yeah. It's not enough. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, yeah. So I'd recommend about two to three servings, depending on how many 
calories somebody needs. Um, and that's kind of in our dietary guidelines as well, that that could be sufficient to provide those omega-3 fats, those anti-inflammatory fats. Uh, but fish, like the bigger fish, like swordfish, um, ahi tuna, those tend to be very high in mercury. I would try to just limit consuming those. If there's plenty of other fish options, that would be a lower uh, mercury content. Mm, that's great to know. And so sugar obviously doesn't feed cancer, right? But so many people think, and I still really worry when I feel like I've had too many sweets. I've got a real sweet tooth. I love making tiramisu. I like cakes. I think people always think I eat this really healthy diet, but I really have to. The sweet thing is just I could eat a lot of sweets, chocolates, puddings. Um, it's working process and progress. <laughs> Um, how much? How much is too much, and where does that come from? The sugar feeds cancer story. Yeah, to tell people that sugar feeds cancer is one of those like half truths. I said, well, yes, and um, yes, cancer cells utilize glucose for energy. So do all of our other cells in our body. Uh, cancer cells are just more rapidly dividing, and so they are taking up more fuel more quickly. But because they are a cell, just like every other cell in the body, they need more than just glucose. They're going to need protein to make their receptors and enzymes. They're going to need fat to make their cell membranes. Um, they're going to need cholesterol for some to synthesize hormones. It, it Just showing that we cannot exclusively limit the fuel for just cancer cells. Okay, you don't get any and the rest of the cells do. Fact is they're just dividing very quickly and taking up a lot of fuel. Um, and then another concern that has come from maybe high carbohydrate diets or a lot of simple sugars is that you could be increasing insulin levels and insulin is a growth signaling molecule. So I'd like to provide some guidance on maybe how you consume those more of those simple sweets. Can you have it around a meal so that that is slowing the digestion and absorption of those carbohydrates so you don't get as big of a spike in your insulin, you know, that growth hormone? Make sure that it's not replacing having healthful foods in your diet as well. Uh, maybe doing it around, um, say, if you like juices or something like that, maybe doing it around your exercise session because then you've got good fuel availability for those muscle cells that also really like glucose. So I try to give some strategies about if you are someone who has a sweet tooth and likes those sweets, what might be some better ways to incorporate them so that can maybe help limit some of your concerns about including them. And that changes the mindset totally from, oh, I mustn't eat sweets today. I'm, I have to be really good. And then you end up thinking about it all day long anyway, or you feel guilty when you get to the end of the day. And again, you've had a day where you didn't quite manage. Um, but to sort of think how how can I sort of change consuming those foods gives a lot more freedom, doesn't it? Makes you feel less restricted. Yeah. And we do know that when you're restricting that that can lead to overeating episodes. And then when you do eat it, not even really getting that enjoyment and pleasure from it because you're feeling so guilty about it. Maybe not really getting able to enjoy and savor it because this is bad for me. I can't believe I'm doing this. And it just takes away a lot of that pleasure. And I like to remind um, survivors that you deserve pleasure around food, just like everybody else on this planet that gets to enjoy an ice cream treat when they're on the beach or on a hot summer day. Like, don't take that away from yourself either. You deserve those simple pleasures in life too. Mm, that is so nice to hear. And also 
this coming from you, I know there is no evidence in saying that this ice, tre- ice cream treat is going to really drastically inc- increase your risks of cancer recurring. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the guidance and you wouldn't be saying those things. So it's it's like, oh, I can drop my shoulders, relax almost um, a, a little bit. Yeah, that's so good. Um, talk to me about soy because soy comes up in so many conversations, especially from people that had a hormone-driven cancer and breast cancers in particular. Obviously, so many people are affected by that. What do you know about soy and what are people's concerns? Because often people say, do I need to limit soy? And then I think, well, do they mean food soy? But many people don't often also mean uh, supplements. So let's talk about soy and food and soy as supplements. Yeah, so we can start with what are the concerns about it? Is that or where those concerns may have come from? is that soy is a source of phytoestrogen. So there's compounds in them that have a structure that is similar to estrogen. And so at very high doses, it's been shown to potentially bind to an estrogen receptor. And then the concern has been with an estrogen-driven cancer, would that then stimulate growth of estrogen-driven cancer cells? So in some early animal studies where they were giving high amounts of those extracts or very high amounts of soy in the diet, we're seeing that it could stimulate breast cancer growth. That was in animal studies at very high doses of compounds that you would not be able to get that high amount through food. So then when we look at animal, or that's animal studies, when we look at the human evidence, there's actually been fairly consistent research that soy food consumption has been associated with a reduced risk of breast cancer. Not only that, more research has come out that soy food consumption has been associated with a reduced risk of recurrence of hormone-driven breast cancer. So I think that that animal evidence that initially came out did scare a lot of people, and it's still that misinformation going around that people are scared of it. What we know from human studies has not supported what was shown in animal studies. And sometimes I have women that say, I've been to a menopause specialist here in the UK, for example, and they've told me to exclude soy from my diet. And so I really always want to ask it because I know you think there are many benefits to soy food, not just for your risk reduction, right? They provide us with lots of other benefits. What do you think some of those benefits of including soy into your diet are? Yeah. And why I like soy too, and supporting the consumption of that is one, it's helping replace animal sources of protein in the diet. Tofu, three ounces of tofu has as much protein as three ounces of chicken breast or beef. So it's very high protein source. Also, we see that soy foods are a good source of calcium. Tofu is another source of calcium. And many women postmenopausal are thinking about their, or should be thinking about their bone health uh, as well. And it is um, other high fiber source There is other compounds in soy because it is a plant food um, that have shown some anti-cancer benefits. So I do hear that, yes, some people are getting this information from their providers, their oncologists about don't include soy and it has people really scared about it. And I think that's unfortunate because that is not what the evidence has shown. And back to the American Institute for Cancer Research, who evaluates all this evidence by experts. Um, they are very stringent about when they say that there's evidence to support something and soy has come up as a food that has been associated with reduced risk of cancer and recurrence. So what are all these soya foods apart from tofu refresh our brains? 
Sure. Tofu, tempeh, um, edamame is eating those smaller uh, soybeans or the soybean, actually soy milk. Uh, miso would be another example. I find like most people that I work with are familiar with tofu. It, and I really like that. I mean, we're talking about red meat. Tofu, you can get around here in the US for like $2 a pound. Red meat, we're looking at more like 8 to $9 a pound. So also very cost, um, cost-friendly, budget-friendly. Mm. The other day, I met a lady who made a really lovely um, menopause blend. And I think it's whole foods and it's got flax seeds in it and pea protein. It's like a blend that you can put into your smoothies. And I was chatting to her and I said, wow, this would probably be really good for people who've had a cancer diagnosis because it's whole foods. Uh, so it d- didn't come in like a tablet form. And she said, yeah, but, you know, lots of people worry about the contraindications or they worry about the soy. So the soy that you've just mentioned is food, soy food. What if we're mm-hmm. not eating enough? Is it as helpful to take a soy supplement or would that come with with risks or what do we know about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And the concerns with those types of supplements, and often they're marketed for like helping with hot flashes of soy isoflavone supplements, because they are using much higher doses than what would be found in soy foods. So that is something I, I tell people to be aware of if they're taking supplements that making sure that there isn't any soy extracts in them that's often used in some popular women's health supplements. And then also that here in the U.S. at least, there's a lot of popularity with these plant-based foods that are turning soy protein powders into chicken nuggets or hot dogs or those types of things. Like, no, that's not the type of soy um, we're promoting. That's an isolated, just the protein of it. You're not getting all the other benefits that come from soy. And that's ultimately just a processed food. Mm. So stick to the foods and stay away from the supplements, really, when it comes to soy. Are there other supplements that you think we should stay away from? Because I know uh, in my own sort of journey, I always thought, well, I just load up. I load up with goodness of food. I load up on supplements. Are you a believer in general that supplements can add all of the goodness if we're not eating enough? Mm -hmm. Or do you think just food is best? Yeah, during cancer treatment, it's definitely a more case-by-case basis because it does depend on what our... I always want to support patient autonomy if they think this might be helpful for them, but that they should be talking about it with their providers because I have seen on many occasions people taking supplements that could be interfering with the metabolism of their drug. Like we want to make sure that the metabolism and it's not affected. Like they're being very careful about what doses you get and are monitoring that it's safe and uh, for you. So you don't want to take anything that could be interfering with that. So supplement-wise, and here in the U.S., supplements are kind of poorly regulated. They don't have to provide any proof of purity, that what they have is all that they have in the supplement. There's been lots of cases of contamination of supplements, impurities, not having the accurate doses. I just think that there's a lot of risk that you're throwing into the mix. I'll say though, I have patients who are having trouble eating a diverse diet, a multivitamin might be something that I'm recommending to them, or they have a particular part of their um, intestine removed, GI tract removed, we do need to supplement with particular nutrients. So it's a case by case basis, but it's not like, okay, everyone has cancer, you need to take turmeric, or you need to take this, that we really have to evaluate the individual's whole picture. Mm. And because you've just mentioned turmeric, 
it seems to be such an anti-cancer food and people love supplements and then they talk about curcumin. What do you think? Do you think it's great to add uh, turmeric into the diet? Will it make a difference? I like to promote including herbs and spices that do have some anti-inflammatory benefits. It adds flavor without having to use salt or more fat in the food. The supplements that are out there, uh, we don't really know how well they're absorbed. It actually has pretty poor absorption and bioavailability. So you're not quite sure how much is actually getting into someone's blood and and having benefits. Um, And there has been some concerns about very high doses of turmeric could have blood thinning effects. And some people are put on blood thinners uh, during cancer treatment because of their risk of clots. So we don't want to add more blood thinning effects on top of that. The evidence on it, I think, is still a little mixed and we're not quite sure the best delivery mechanism. I know there are some supplements that are like nanoparticles and and things like that, but the absorption is a big concern. Mm -hmm. Mm, Because uh, turmeric always seems to be such an anti-cancer food when I hear it and it's sort of used. Do you feel that there are real anti-cancer foods that you would say have anti-cancer properties? Or do you think that it's just a term, a marketing term that has been put onto certain food groups or ingredients or supplements? Yeah. Also, I'll say like in the research, there has been a shift because it really started, I said, even when I was first getting into cancer, it's like, look at this one particular compound in this plant and what does it do? And then it became, for example, resveratrol and red wine. And people are like, oh, resveratrol is good for heart health. Resveratrols and red wine. Everyone should be drinking red wine. It's like, well, that's not how that, that works. Then I started going to look into particular foods um, and identifying some foods. But now we're really looking at dietary patterns and what are the patterns of intake? Because people aren't just eating individual compounds. They're not just eating individual foods. They're eating those foods within a context of a dietary pattern every day. Um, so that to say like, yes, I think there's some marketing on particular foods, like you need to have pomegranate or you need to eat this food when much of the research is now just supporting, if you include more plants in the diet, include more green leafy vegetables in those plants and beans, legumes, these patterns of intake are things I really like to support rather than saying you need to eat this food for cancer benefits. Mm. Oh, the good old sound advice, isn't it? <laughs> I just but, it's not, but it's not popular, you know? It doesn't get that buzzworthy attention. I mean, it's so easy, isn't it, to say um, turmeric has anti-cancer properties and we focus everything on turmeric. And then in doing so, we might forget about all the other trimmings that other lots of lots of other ingredients can sort of bring with them. I think I'm definitely very guilty of that single focus for a long time and forgetting about everything else because my brain can only hold so much. Before I let you go, before I let you go and let you go on with your day, um, can you tell me what um, your research tells us about mushrooms at the moment? So I have been asked more and more, and I'd like to discuss that more and more on the podcast. People talk about lion's mane for cognitive health, but people also talk about something else for cancer risk reduction. I can't remember which one that is. But what do we know about mushrooms? Or Yeah. Yeah, so there are different types of mushroom, as you mentioned, like lion's mane. There's been some stuff with turkey tail. And That's there have it. been some small yeah, uh, clinical trials, maybe looking at the compounds that are within those particular mushrooms and showing some benefit maybe for cognitive health or uh, for turkey tail. There's been some with immune function. But 
I think we need to be careful because these small trials come out and supplement companies just see dollar signs in their eyes. Like, okay, then we can sell this, powder it, market it, and people will buy this. Whether those products actually have that right amount of the compound that was used in the same, in that trial, um, has that been contaminated with anything else? That's my biggest concern is like, yes, I think it's cool to get excited about what types of functional foods we could be incorporating as someone's treatment plan, but we don't always have the best resources to direct them to what's a good company to get this from and how much could you actually get? Um, could it interfere with your therapy? Cause the trial was maybe done in, uh, for example, turkey tail, some of that immune function stuff was done in gastric cancer. Well, is that going to have the same benefit in someone who has breast cancer or esophageal cancer? We still don't have that amount of research yet. Mm. And I guess with something like the mushrooms, it's not something that I would probably even know where to buy as a raw food uh, ingredient. I, I don't know. I haven't seen them in my local supermarket. So you'd probably go directly towards supplements. And yeah, then you come, then that comes with all of the other risks of what's, what else is in those supplements? How have yeah. they been grown? Where have they been? Yeah. How have they been there fertilized? A, an example in, in the US uh, that a very popular medical doctor had a TV show and he was recommending a particular compound uh, for fat loss. Well, of course, dollar signs went around in these supplement companies and there was testing of these supplements and many of them didn't have any of that ingredient in it at all. Right? All they had to do was put a label on it that it had this very popular compound and uh, people were buying it, but it had none of that active ingredient. So unfortunately, it's consumers, it's a buyer beware market. And I often think too, it's like, see, those are limited trials. We don't really know a safe way for you to get them. If you're going to get a pure amount of it, they're expensive. Could we use that money to help you incorporate more plant foods in your diet? Maybe get a good gym membership or uh, at-home workout equipment. Think about that cost-benefit analysis, and could you be using that money for something else where we do have stronger research to support? That is an amazing way of looking at it. And that would be fantastic, isn't it? If we could steer everyone really towards using their resources. And that's not only financial, that's also the energy that we spend time Googling and researching and following every Lion's Mane coffee I do at the moment. Lion's Mane coffee here. <laughs> I'm, I'm even thinking maybe I should start drinking coffee again. I, don't, I haven't drank coffee in like 10 years, but because there is Lion's oh. Mane coffee, will it help with my brain fog? <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I think like if you find something did work for you and I know brain fog is a really challenging one. We don't have a lot of research on it. It's like I found when I drink this, I feel cognitively better. Well, then that's benefiting you. Right. But for others, yeah. like, well, I heard this was good, but it's really not helping. But I guess I'll just keep taking it. It's like, let's stop and reevaluate. I definitely work with patients. Like, let's look at this. Let's trial you not taking this for a month. See how you're doing. See how you feel. Um, and could we use those financial resources for something else? Yeah, yeah. One of the main symptoms that so many of us women who are in menopause after cancer have is real fatigue. And often we don't know, is it still because of active treatment? Then we don't know, is it because menopause has been added on top of that? Are there some do's and don'ts in your sort of guidebook of how to manage that best? Yes. Yeah, so for uh, cancer fatigue, there actually has been some uh, studies at diet and, and found that 
again, the same message there, a more anti-inflammatory dietary pattern, more plant-forward, has been associated with less severe, um, cog- not cognitive, um, fatigue, severity of fatigue, which is great to show that the dietary approach that we are recommending for reducing the risk of recurrence is also a dietary approach that could help reduce the severity of, as you mentioned, the very common uh, lingering side effect of uh, cancer treatment. Often, as you mentioned, like there's also more that contributes to this fatigue than just being tired. Um, it could be that change in hormones. It could be some of the lingering effects of the treatment itself. That cancer fatigue is very complex, so it's also not going to be treated by just one medication or one supplement that we have to look at a holistic approach. Exercise is actually recommended in the guidelines for cancer fatigue. Acupuncture might actually help some individuals with fatigue as well. So I like to say that there's more than just looking for this magical energy pill or supplement that cancer fatigue can be very complex caused by different uh, mechanisms. So we have to target those different mechanisms, building up muscle, including more anti-inflammatory foods, getting better sleep quality, mental health support, you know, really finding that whole toolbox to support the individual. Yeah. And I think everyone of us out there is sort of putting things into their own toolbox and it looks so very different, isn't it? Some people start with exercise and maybe food comes years later and other people throw everything in and they want to do everything at the same time and whatever people are putting into their toolbox, I always really want to make sure that we do the things that make the most sense. And I think diet is one of those that comes with the most amount of myths and that all of the advice that you've given that is really just grounding and based in evidence um, is probably quite easy to implement because it doesn't need much, but also in reality, it's the hardest to stick with because we've so many of us have been used to eat really crazy ways, right? We've kind of like lost touch with eating a sensible way. Yeah, I love the way that you said that too. Like often too, that misinformation can cause people to lose touch with finding what feels good for them to eat. Like, wow, I like incorporating soy. I really enjoy it, but I heard it's bad for me. And so maybe the choices I make around food are wrong. And kind of back to how we started this, that uh, that's a very stressful way. And it puts people out of touch with finding a dietary pattern that makes them feel best and helps support their individual health goals. But yes, mm-hmm. I see that, that there's that's probably the hardest thing about working in this field. So we can have all that evidence, but how do we implement it? How do we get people to make those dietary choices? Because having the time, having the resources can be a real challenge too. So I also like to encourage people to start with one thing. It's like, okay, plant forward diet. How could I include another serving of vegetables in my day? How could I swap out one serving of an animal protein with a plant source protein this week? Setting those small goals that you can build from because you don't have to do everything all at once to get the benefits. Mm. Well, you're doing an amazing job at helping us make those changes for being here today, for giving us your time on the podcast, for creating all of those amazing bits of information on your social media. Thank you, Crystal. It's been so great to hear everything you say backed up by evidence and by studies. And I think it's going to give all of us so much confidence in navigating these topics we've discussed going forward. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. And I really value what you're doing to support women again in an area that does not get enough support. Thank you so much.
I hope this conversation has been really useful for you and that it clarified some of the things. And also, I hope it's really given you some hope that you are on the right track if you've already implemented some of these changes. Over a year ago, when I launched the Menopause and Cancer podcast, we had the fantastic Hilary Wright on the podcast, another dietitian and menopause and cancer expert from the US. And we did a myth-busting session with her. And I know many people really sat there with pen and paper. And I think it's really important to revisit these conversations because as Crystal said, we've had more evidence that's come out, especially around the use of soy products in breast cancer survivors. And so I think it's really important to revisit so that we can continuously revisit our diet and think, is how I'm eating right now working for me? Is it tasty? Does it fit in with my weekly schedule? Or am I feeling totally out of my depth, exhausted by trying to cook and prepare all of these meals? And actually, I've really sort of lost my mojo and my joy. And only once we've sort of sat down with ourselves a little bit, can we think, yeah, what do I need to tackle? Because it might not actually be that you need to change up lots of recipes or add lots of different ingredients. It might just be for you that you sit down for once for an hour or two once and come up with a really sort of broad meal plan and you stick that on your fridge and then you've got a guide to what you buy on your weekly shop whether you do an online shop or you go to your local supermarket and that actually alone can be really transformative in how you view your eating your diet is going in your weeks and sometimes that planning alone can make us feel a lot more in control and it can make us feel that we're on the right track and it can also really set ourselves up for success and so perhaps today's message and there were so many amazing key points in crystal's conversation but i want to leave you with just thinking over your diet for you what's working what's not working Is it the foods you're eating? I hope we've clarified some confusion. Or is it actually that you need to restructure your week a little bit? When do you shop? How much do you plan? And maybe that's your little project for the next few weeks. And with all of those thoughts, all of those many, many, many nuggets of thoughts, I'm going to love you and leave you. And I'm excited to come back next week and talk to you more about super, super exciting things. And for today, I'm just really grateful for people like Crystal who can help us demystify so much and bring a bit more clarity as what's good on our plates. All the best. <music>